Beloved, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we look this morning to a heart-penetrating parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14. Please hear the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our loving Father, we pray that you would be pleased by your spirit to work in our lives as your word is preached. Would you humble us? Would you work in our hearts a heart of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Many important questions are being asked in our culture right now. These are questions being asked by all of the talk radio shows and the talking heads on cable network news and all around our culture. Questions about our economy. Questions about our relationship with foreign powers. Questions about who will win the next presidential election. Questions about the moral revolution and the unraveling of society as we've known it in this country for two centuries and more. And on and on and on we can go with these questions that are at the forefront of people's minds in our day. But this morning, as we take the words of the psalmist in Psalm 46.10, and as we are still and stop from all of our strivings and all of our busyness and, and our schedules, and we just are still and know that He is God, as we stop on this Sabbath day to consider God's Word, we are forced to consider what is today and is perennially the most important question among mankind. The most important question facing mankind in every age, how can a guilty sinner be reconciled to a holy God? How can a guilty sinner, and by the way, we all are under that category, how can a guilty sinner be made right or be reconciled to a holy God? Perhaps some of you here this morning have gotten caught up in this 
fast pace of life. We all have to some measure, haven't we? And perhaps you've been caught up in this for a long time and have really given little thought to this colossal question, the answer to which has massive and eternal consequences. And so this morning, we are going to take some time to think about what the Lord Jesus Christ has to teach us from this very important and sobering parable found in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want to begin, though, by sharing with you about the leader of the modern missionary movement, a, name by the, a man by the name of William Carey. Uh, Carey was born in a thatched roof cottage in Northamptonshire, England, on August 17, 1761. He was raised the son of weavers. At 18 years old, he began following Christ, and he joined a congregational church. Uh, during this period, he became an apprentice shoemaker. It was an early version of Nike. After marrying at age 20, he began regularly walking a five-mile trek to Olney. There he would grow spiritually under a well-known preacher and hymn writer named John Newton, who, of course, of course wrote Amazing Grace. Still in his early 20s, William Carey had an affinity for languages. It is said that early on in his life, he had mastered Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Italian. And while cobbling shoes together, he would study his books. This would later serve him well in the mission field, as I will mention. After serving briefly as a pastor of a small congregational church, Carey was drawn towards missions. But it wasn't until 10 years later, in 1793, that God led William Carey and his family to sail to the shores, the pagan shores of India. And it wasn't easy. They didn't see a convert in over seven years. In over seven years. They were constantly plagued with financial tr troubles, sickness, and even the death of loved ones. But over the next 40 years, this so-called uh, father of modern missions translated the Bible into six languages, Bengali, Arabic, Hindi, and Sanskrit, as well as others. He also founded a college in Sarampur, which still exists today. Perhaps more than all of these accomplishments, the Lord used his bold example in challenging writings and, 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 and to, to come up with challenging writings to challenge the modern missionary movement, to, to call uh, men to, and women to come and to be a part of the missionary movement. Tens of thousands of missionaries were influenced by Carey, by his example, and also by his writings, who came to the mission field during the 19th and 20th centuries. Carey's impact was deep. His accomplishments were vast. His name was known the world over. He saw yet... No reason to boast in any of it. No reason to see himself as anything but an unworthy object of God's sovereign mercy. A poor sinner saved by grace. In fact, written on his gravestone at his insistence is this simple epitaph. William Carey, born 17th of August, 1761, died 9th of June, 1834, a wretched 
poor and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. What we read on Carrie's epitaph and what we learn from this passage before us this morning is that there is only one right way to view ourselves before the living and true God. And that is as guilty, helpless sinners who desperately need divine mercy. Who desperately need divine mercy. Today, as much as ever. We need God's grace and mercy today as much as we have ever needed. And it can never be exhausted. God's grace in Jesus Christ is infinite. It can never be exhausted. Isn't that good news? I think it was Spurgeon who said, I heard quoted this week, I was at a conference, so I heard a lot of wonderful uh, teaching this week. And I think it was Spurgeon that was quoted in saying that if we think we can, we've, we've, we've exhausted God's grace in some way, well, you need to think about it like this. We are like a tiny fish in the vast ocean. And that's like saying that this tiny fish can exhaust all the water around him in some way or drink it down. God's grace is so vast, it is so infinite, it is so glorious. And it's what we need today as much as ever. There is only one way we we learn in this passage to approach God. And that is with a heart of deep humility, recognizing the infinite debt we owe, confessing the mountain of sin that we have committed, and not trusting in ourselves and our own righteousness at all. Not even a little. So as I mentioned, I believe it was last week, if God were to ask you, as the famous evangelical explosion questions are, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, that you wouldn't say something like this. Well, I've lived a pretty good life. I went to church. I'm baptized. I went to the Lord's table. Do you notice the word I keep saying? I, I, I. We're going to see that's the prayer of the Pharisee in our passage. If I is the first thing you say when God says, why should I let you into heaven? Then you have a problem with your understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news is not us and what we have done. The good news is Christ and what he has done. Amen? And a lot of, of, of iterations and expressions of the Christian faith have focused on what we do rather than what Christ has done. And we are, of course, knocked back into our senses when we're thinking that way in the passage we're looking at this morning. We don't trust in ourselves and our own moral strivings. We trust solely in the Lord and His undeserved mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through His blood and righteousness alone that we can be saved. Could you imagine being there on Calvary and seeing Christ on the cross and his blood is, is pouring out of his wrists and his, 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 his ankles and his back and his brow and, and his blood is pouring down onto the earth there on Golgotha and for you to think, well, that blood pays for some of my salvation, but not all. I must make up the difference with my life. Well, we see how foolish that is when we think about it. 
If we put our hope and trust in something other than God's mercy in Christ, then we have fundamentally misunderstood the Christian faith and are in no better position than the Pharisee highlighted in the parable before us this morning. But before we unpack this parable, I want us to understand this one thing, that the way a person prays reveals a lot about what they believe about God. This parable records two prayers. Did you notice that? There are two prayers in this parable. One that reveals a heart of pride and self-righteousness. The other, a heart of brokenness and repentance and trust in the Lord. There's an old 5th century Latin phrase which says, lex orandi, lex credendi. What does that mean? Well, it means the law of praying is the law of believing. How you pray is what you believe. In other words, what you pray is what you believe about yourself and what you believe about God. It's why it's hard to listen to some prayers that happen in some Christian settings because there's such an air of pride and hubris to them. An approach to God as if we deserve in and of our own selves and merits or we come flippantly or, or hyper-informally before the King of Kings. No, if we come biblically, we come humbly and contritely to our Lord. Well, let's first of all look at verse 9 and the setting of this parable. Look with me at verse 9 and the setting of this parable. Verse 9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here's the setting. Here's the context. He's telling this parable to those who are trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Luke doesn't record where Jesus is or who exactly his audience is, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that the parable is specifically directed towards those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This includes first century Pharisees, but it certainly is not limited to them because there are 21st century individuals who would trust in themselves for their standing with God. This parable is directed towards all of those who would trust in themselves, to those who believe that their own good works would justify them before God. Perhaps there are some here this morning who, when they think about it, do actually trust in their own good works to save them or think that they are supposed to trust in their own good works in order to save them. But our good works, as we will learn, are never perfect good works. Our good works are never perfect good works. I learned to not uh, ask people to raise their hands during services because I know sometimes people's attention can go in and out because my attention goes in and out um, when I'm listening to preaching sometimes. Uh, so I was in a, in a service one time and... Uh, the pastor, I was an assistant pastor at the time, and the pastor said, I mean, who in here has ever obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly? I thought he had said something different. And I proceeded to raise my hand. And he said, uh, he kind of looked over and said, except John. I thought, oh my goodness, my wife was so embarrassed. But you know, we all 
can slip into this, and some have been in it for a very long time, trusting in ourselves for a right standing with God. If I were to ask you this morning, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, would you be raising your hand right now if I said, you know, I do think maybe I've been trusting in my own works for salvation rather than in the work of Christ alone. Well, this parable, uh, in this parable, Jesus introduces his listeners to two characters. It's the tale of two men. Look at verse 10 with me. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, to fully understand what's going on in this parable, it's important that we understand who Pharisees were and who tax collectors were uh, in the first century. Now, uh, these two uh, positions, even in our own day, would have negative connotations, right? I mean, uh, tax collector, uh, the, you know, visions of flowers and, uh, and, and, and sunny skies don't appear in our minds when we think of tax collectors, um, and the same goes, of course, for those who would be labeled as Pharisees. Well, who were the Pharisees in the first century? The Pharisees were a religious and political sect within Israel that sought to provide an example of strict adherence to the law of Moses, to the law of God. The name Pharisee is derived from a Hebrew word that means separate or separated. The Pharisees were especially strict about tithing, fasting, and ritual purity, leading most of them to not only eat with one another so that they would not become ceremonially unclean by eating with a less circumspect Jew. They didn't even want to eat with other Jews because they wouldn't be a circumspect about their lives and their rule following. The Pharisees were strict rule followers who were greatly respected by their neighbors for their piety. But many of them, if not most of them, were self-righteous hypocrites, following the letter of the law while neglecting the spirit of the law. They weren't obeying with love and faith. They were obeying with self-righteousness and disdain for others, as we read in verse 9, with contempt for others. Dear ones, that is an anti-Christian way to live living self-righteously and living with contempt for others, even, even as it concerns our enemies. Even as it concerns our enemies. We are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We don't live as Christians with self-righteousness and contempt. We live with humility before God, and we live with love for others, and we pray for others and have compassion on others who do not know the Lord. Many of these self-righteous hypocrites, of course, were around in Jesus' day. They didn't see a need for a Savior and thought that they were acceptable to God based on their own merits and the comparison of themselves to others. On many occasions, Jesus confronted their hypocrisy and their lack of faith and their absence of sincere love for God and their neighbor. And the Pharisees, we learn from the Gospels, sought to destroy Jesus from the earliest days of his public ministry because they saw him as a threat to the law and to their high reputation amongst the Jewish people. So that's the Pharisee. 
Well, how about the tax collector? What do we know about the tax collector? Well, it couldn't be any more of a high contrast to the Pharisee. The tax collector was considered the dredge of Jewish society. We might think of prostitutes or drug dealers. This is how people thought of tax collectors. First of all, as Jews, as Jews, these tax collectors were Jews, and they were employed by the tyrannical Roman government. And so they were viewed as traitors by their fellow countrymen. Secondly, they usually made a large part of their income by extortion, collecting more money from their Jewish countrymen than was required and becoming wealthy off of it. They were greedy swindlers. They had no moral compass. Third, they were irreligious. They were rarely, if ever, seen at or near the temple. And so here we have the Pharisee and the tax collector, two men who had almost nothing in common, one a religious purist and the other a dishonest and irreligious crook. One writer put it this way, quote, The Pharisee belonged to the most pious movement, while the tax collector was part of the most hated profession. So from all appearances, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Who was in a right relationship with God and who was not? But appearances aren't everything, are they? Let's take a look at the two prayers found in verses 11 through 13. First, we have the Pharisee's prayer. If one can even call it a prayer. Look with me at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. If this guy stumbles across uh, uh, some money on the ground, he is going to pick it up and he is going to tithe off of it. The self-righteous Pharisee's prayer. What do we notice about this prayer? First of all, we notice the place of his prayer. The Pharisee is described, as you notice from your text, as standing by himself at the temple, most likely suggesting that he is drawing attention to himself while standing in a prominent place. We know from other parts of the Gospels that the Pharisees love to be seen and recognized for their acts of piety. Secondly, notice the content of the Pharisee's prayer. Rather than placing his focus upon God and praise to him, he straightaway begins to compare himself with others and thanks God that he is not like them. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Rather than praying for the tax collector, he thanks God that he is not like him. I'm glad we never do that. I'm glad we never find our hearts in such a place that rather than pray for those who need Christ, we, we look down on them and think highly of ourselves. Rather than compare himself to men more righteous than he, the Pharisee identifies the lowest dregs of society, and puts his spiritual pedigree next to theirs in order to confirm his standing with God. 
He believes that God grades on a curve and he is at the top of it. By the way, who doesn't like to be graded on a curve? Right? Who doesn't like that? I, I, I wished all my teachers graded on a curve when I was going through high school and college. I needed them to grade me on a curve. After making these comparisons and thanking God for his superiority over others, the Pharisee reminds God of his regular show of piety. In case God forgot, let me, let me tell you how righteous I am, God. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. You see, it was common for Pharisees to fast on Mondays and Thursdays, even though the law only called for an annual fast on the Day of Atonement. So he's going beyond the law. He's saying, look, God, I'm going beyond. And while it was not required in the Mosaic law to tie the portion of every meal to the Lord, this is what they would do. It was a part of the tradition that grew up around the law that the Pharisees, by the way, wanted everybody to keep. Beloved, these words were more about the Pharisees' list of spiritual achievements than a prayer to God. He refers to himself five times. I, I this, I that. J.C. Ryle calls it a boasting recital. And never once does he express any contrition, any humility, any recognition of sin, any sense that he even needs the God to whom he offers his prayer. And before we cast the first stone, let's pause for a moment and evaluate our own approach to God. Could it be that our own prayers and our own spirituality can look awfully similar to this? Or our hearts? Our prayers can be devoid of brokenness over sin. We too can come to God full of self-confidence and self-reliance, feeling that God must love me and must accept me and must listen to my prayers because I am, behold, a pretty good person. And compared to the folks on the rougher side of town, I'm practically a saint. Like the Pharisee, we can approach prayer with small thoughts of God and big thoughts of ourselves. We approach God believing ourselves to be inherently worthy because of our family background or our theological persuasion or uh, the size of our library or our social status or our education or our moral strivings or our place in the community. Rarely, if ever, confessing our sins and recognizing our profound need of God's grace. Dear friends, to pray to God with this kind of spiritual pride and self-justification is profoundly dangerous. Why? Because it exposes a heart of unbelief and a path that ultimately leads to eternal damnation. I was reading a sermon this morning of John Murray's from two chapters before this in Luke 16 on the rich man and Lazarus, on the rich man and Lazarus, and how people's understanding of things in this life, people think that because they have material blessings that they must be okay. But the, but the story of the rich man and Lazarus shows that Things are quite different than they often look from the outside. And the poorest person in the 
and these mountains who is clinging to Christ, who is, who's wondering where their next meal is going to come from, is much more blessed having Christ than the wealthiest man or woman in the world without Christ. This is what Jesus is trying to bring out in these parables. But here's the thing, beloved. There's always hope in the gospel. There's good news. There's always hope for those who recognize their guilt and throw themselves on God's mercy through faith in Christ. Amen? For those who by grace throw themselves into the kind arms of the Heavenly Father through the blood of Jesus, there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? So that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. There is a category in the Bible called perishing. And apart from Christ, we will perish. But in Christ, we will have everlasting life in him. This leads us to the second prayer in our passage, the humble tax collector's prayer. Look with me at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As I mentioned earlier, tax collectors weren't normally seen at or near the temple. But here is this tax collector. In contrast to the prideful Pharisee, he is broken and contrite before holy God. He's too timid and ashamed of his own sin to go close to the temple. So he stands far off, probably on the outer edge of the court of the Gentiles. He feels his sin deeply. So much so that he can not even lift his eyes to heaven, which would have been, would have been a standard way to pray in that day. On the contrary, he beat his chest as a sign of penitence and humility before God. I remember that powerful moment in my own life. After having been in a terrible junk driving car accident after my sophomore year in college, sitting in a jail cell, thinking prior to that that I was okay because I had religion because I grew up in the Lutheran church and because I had a mental assent to the truths of the Apostles' Creed and such. I thought I was okay. But my life was clearly not one where I was believing in Christ and living for Christ by His grace. My life was not a life of faith. It was a life of wickedness and sin. But that night, by God's grace, and like this tax collector, I couldn't even raise my eyes to heaven. I was so ashamed of myself and my sin and my unbelief and all the times I had blasphemed God with my language. And I prayed something similar to this. God, have mercy on me. My life is a wreck. I have nothing to offer you but my own sin. 
Forgive me, Father. And I want to know your Son. I want to receive your Son as my Lord and Savior. And that night, God saved me and he changed my life. And he set me on a course of sanctification, of dying to sin and living to Christ, never without fault, but always by God's grace was he growing me and changing me and still continues to. You see, it's when we come before God with that repentant heart, that broken heart, that we know the Spirit is at work in us. This tax collector knew he was unworthy. He knew and felt his guilt. No one had to convince him of his need for God's mercy. He wasn't grading himself on a curve. He wasn't looking to justify himself by comparing himself to worse tax collectors, maybe. Oh, Lord, I thank you I'm not like that really bad tax collector over there. He extorted 40%. I only extorted 15 Oh, no. He was not making justifications. The only sinner he was thinking about was himself. In fact, in the Greek text, there is a definite article that precedes the tax collector's description of himself. And so you could translate this, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. He saw himself as the biggest sinner in the world. This reminds us of King David's broken and contrite attitude in prayer in Psalm 51. In his Psalm of Confession, David begins by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And in verse 4, he declares to God, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In Isaiah 6, when the prophet is in the presence of God, he cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, a man of unclean lips. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, writes that, quote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, now listen, of whom I am the foremost. And then he writes, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying God saved the worst sinner so that he'd give hope to sinners in the future. And there is hope, beloved, with all of the madness going on in our society, with all the lies being told, with Freud and Marx and Darwin taking front seat in, in the classroom, in our public universities, and in the thinking of our day, and the su- hypersubjectivity and the triumph of the modern self, we still have hope in Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead and who died for sinners like you and me. And so we have this humble and contrite approach to God in prayer which is fundamental to the Christian faith. This humble and contrite acknowledgement of sin before God and a reliance upon His mercy is not just something we do at the start of our Christian life or only when you've had especially bad days. No, this approach to God is the essence of the Christian faith. It's a proper understanding. Please hear this. It's a proper understanding of God's holiness and of our sinfulness and of God's mercy through the atonement of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, what's interesting about the Greek word for mercy in our text, the word eleos, is that it's the word used for atonement in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Why is this important to understand? Because the tax collector was not simply asking God for some kind of general generic mercy, a kind of generic absolution without cost. No, the tax collector standing outside the temple where animals were being sacrificed was asking for atonement for his sins, that they would be covered and forgiven and expiated and that God's wrath would be turned away from him. The tax collector was crying out for atonement, for his sins to be paid for and removed. And here is where the gospel becomes so abundantly clear. It is ultimately in Christ where believers find salvation and atonement for their sins. We cannot justify ourselves before God with good works. And it's not like it's 90% of Christ and His good works and 10% of our good works and it's kind of a salvation by cooperation. Oh no, Christ has paid it all. His blood cleanses the foulest sinner totally clean by grace through faith. And the good works we do are by consequence of that, out of a heart of gratitude, not as a heart of trying to earn God's salvation or earn a place in heaven. It has been paid for in full by Christ himself. This is what the Pharisee failed to see. He thought his life measured up to God's righteous standard in some way, but it didn't. Why? Because even our good works fail to measure up to God's righteous standard. Even our best good works are bad good works outside of Christ because they are tainted with sin. What the Pharisee needed, what the tax collector knew he needed, and what we all need is God's mercy manifested through the sinless life, atoning death, and hell-conquering resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Him, we receive God's mercy. Through faith in Him, we receive God's forgiveness. Through faith in Him, we receive God's grace, God's inheritance. Through faith in Christ, we received imputed righteousness and are declared righteous before God. And so, who are we outside of Christ? We are sinners. We are under God's wrath. We are under His judgment. Who are we in Christ? Who are we in Christ? Our sins are paid for on the cross. Christ's righteousness is given to us so that now we stand before God declared righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of all of what Christ has done for us. Dear one, Christ died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He has ascended into heaven for you. And he is there for you, representing you. Do you trust him? Do you believe him for all of your salvation? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God's mercy is rooted in the atonement of Christ. And this was the foundational message of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Day of Atonement mentioned in Leviticus 16. The blood of bulls and goats were sprinkled on the mercy seat in the temple, signaling to God's people that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No mercy. There must be payment for sin. God's justice must be satisfied. But the message of Hebrews 
is that the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do. There had to be another, one who would represent fallen humanity, one who would become an atonement for sinners, sinners like us who violated God's law. God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become human flesh, born of a woman, born to live a sinless life according to His law, and then as a perfect sinless sacrifice to give His life as a substitution for our sins. He bore God's justice and wrath on the cross so that our sins could be atoned for, so that your sins could be atoned for, so that by grace through faith in Christ, we can receive mercy. Mercy. Now you see why the apostle declared in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, we all, to some level, have an elevated view of ourselves. The pride still exists in every one of us. It shows up and manifests itself in various ways. One of the most prideful athletes that ever existed was Muhammad Ali. Do you remember Muhammad Ali, the great fighter? The story has it that he was in an airplane, and they were getting ready to take off, and he didn't have his seatbelt on. And the stewardess came by and said, "Uh, Sir... You need to put your seatbelt on. He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she quickly retorted, Superman don't need no airplane either. Put it on. <laughs> we, we all, to some level, have this pride of thinking that God will accept my good works And that that's what will make me right with God and reconciled to God and at peace with God. But what the gospel says is it's not my works, my faulty, sin-tainted works that make me right with God. It's the perfect works of Christ. His perfect life, his perfect atoning death, and his hell-conquering resurrection from the dead. In him alone do we have salvation? And in him then, as Christians, we live a life of gratefulness and good works and obedience. Not to add to anything Christ has done, but because of what Christ has done. Well, what was Jesus' response to these two different approaches to God? Here we have two outcomes. We have two uh, men, we have two prayers, and then we have two outcomes. Look with me at verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house, what? Justified. Rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, from all appearances, from those walking by or, or in the temple that day, it was the Pharisee who was justified before God. The Pharisee with his flowery prayers and lofty position and impeccable reputation. But it wasn't. It was the wretched tax collector who was justified. Why? Because he approached God on God's terms, not on his own. He came as a broken and contrite sinner, deeply feeling his unworthiness, confessing and turning from his sinful ways, and crying out to God for undeserved mercy. And it says here that he went home from the Temple Mount justified. And what is justification before God? 
Our own catechism says so clearly, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Dear ones, we will all go home at one point. After lunch today, we'll go home. When we go home, will we go home as those who are justified or as those who are still in our sin? Here's the good news for you. Christ invites you to believe on him, to receive him by grace through faith to receive him and all that he has done for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy laden with the burdens that have been placed on you by your own heart, perhaps by some religion, perhaps by some form of spirituality. The burdens are so heavy because deep down inside, you know that you can never do enough to make yourself right with God. Well, Christ says, I have done enough and my grace is sufficient For you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in God, not in self. John Wesley was right when he said that we cannot trust in Christ's merits until we renounce our own. Have you done that? Where is your confidence? Is it in yourself or fully and completely in Christ? Put your faith in Christ alone, dear one. He loves sinners, and he is full of abundant mercy. As we close, let us not forget William Carey's epitaph, describing himself as a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. By the grace of God, may this be our approach to God in prayer. And even as we approach death, trusting alone in his mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this parable spoken by your son in his earthly ministry and set down in scripture and used by your spirit to bring conviction. And we pray to create and strengthen faith. Oh Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you direct our eyes to you, O God? And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name.